Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Today we have Jen Gunnels, who's an editor at Macmillan, and just to give you an idea of how awesome she is, she has set off arrows that are on fire for fun. One thing to note, Jen uses adult language so artfully, we couldn't bear to bleep it out. So if you're listening among children, you might want to grab some headphones. Also, we recorded this in the Flatiron Building in Macmillan's offices, so you will hear some typical New York City sounds. Enjoy. Why don't you tell us who you are, where you are, how you started in publishing, and a few cool things in your office, because I'm seeing (laughs) at least four living plants, five, six. Yes. This is amazing. (laughs) I see a button that says chaos, panic, and disaster. My work here is done. (laughs) Yeah, that's what's in the parentheses. Oh, that's fantastic. Um... I have thanks for the advice, but what I really need are minions. Yeah. I have these really cute little robot Christmas ornaments that my best friend uh, gave to me. I have a single taken and building my empire magnet. I like that building my empire is checked. That's the best option. Yeah, that's the best option. Um, I do. I have uh, two bamboos Mm. and a couple other plants. I actually grew this particular vining thing here. I don't even know what it is. um, From a leaf. Wow. Like a year and a half ago, this was just a leaf. Um, I tend not to kill them. Uh, but to answer the initial portion of that, uh, I'm Jen Gunnels. Um, we are currently talking in my office in lovely, what is this, downtown Manhattan? I don't Flatiron Manhattan. Yeah, Flatiron Manhattan. My, my notions about New York geography are infantile at best. That's okay. You and wound conf- up at your office. Yeah, so. and, and mostly confused. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got here in a very roundabout kind of way. Um, I actually got a doctorate in performance theory, so I've done lots and lots of theater. I've been a theater critic. I am still theater critic and theater editor for the New York Review of Science Fiction. Uh, I've also worked on the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction Online as a contributing editor in performance. Um, I've got lots and lots and lots of articles and critical stuff that's out there under Jen Gunnell's that I all did, I did before I even got here. Um, I have been the editor along with Aaron Underwood on the volume Geek Theater. Cool. Um, and had essays and various other articles contribute to compilations. and So I've been busy. I've been very busy. That's fantastic. How did you end up right here? Uh, I got a divorce and I desperately needed to, <laughs> to pay rent and eat. Mm-hmm. Um and so while I was looking for a job, David Hartwell said, hey, you know, there's a pile of stuff here that needs to be read. The intern had to go back and do the undergraduate completion. So why don't you come here, do this, you can, you know, continue to look for a job, you'll get some experience, and it'll be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, we lost a few editors here while I was sitting there, and Tom Doherty kind of said, well, hey, Jen's warm in the bench, let's put her in. Yeah. Um, and I just, it's not something I hadn't done before. Mm-hmm. I mean, certain aspects like the marketing and publicity are very, very new to me because that's not something that's really big in, in academic work. Right. Um, 
So I have a little bit of a learning curve, but, you know, I know how things hang together and what they're supposed to do. And I've been a dramaturg on new works and plays before, so... Mm -hmm. I think a lot of theater is very applicable. It's really amazing to me how many people in publishing have a theater background oh, as well. Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's, there's a level of collaboration mm-hmm. with people who have very, very different types of abilities and skill sets. Mm-hmm. And an editor, much like a director and a dramaturg combined, have to help coordinate some of these things because we're kind of the central node. We've read the book, we've lived in the book, we've worked with the author. And so it makes sense that we would kind of play point on some of these things. Yeah. And the key is knowing when to step back because you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't tell marketing how to do their job for heaven's sakes. That's right. why they're in marketing <laughs> and I am not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that has stood me in, in very good position doing this, um, the stress levels are way lower than they are in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and dealing with authors is really not unlike dealing with actors and their agents. Mm-hmm. And so you just, there's really an easy transition between the two. It's interesting to think of the emergencies that happen backstage versus the emergencies that happen in publishing, right? Like backstage, it can be like, oh no, this cue isn't working, we need to get the actor Oh, I've had people accidentally set their costume on fire. How? Um, We were doing... (laughs) We were doing this really, really great play uh, called The Real Down Low on Calamity Jane, and this woman was playing this um, uh, saloon girl and she's smoking on stage, and she's got this feather boa on, and the cigarette accidentally caught the feather boa on oh, fire. No. My stage manager is on the headset with me because I was directing, and he's like, holy crap, it's <laughs> on fire. And I'm looking, and it's smoking, and I'm like, shit. <laughs> and so we're madly gesticulating, and Amy's watching, and I mean, it's partly musical, so she's kind of singing, and she's looking at us, and she's smoking, and you can see her thinking, like, why are they doing this? And, <laughs> and we're pointing, and she looks down very casually, sees that she's on fire, very calmly walks to the edge of the stage, undoes the boa like she's stripping, throws it off stage, and immediately continues doing what she's doing, knowing wow. that someone is going to take care of it. Wow. That's some trust. I mean, she was just... <laughs> and and that's just it. I mean, part of that is you're making this piece of art, and you trust that you've gotten together the best people for that particular piece of art. Mm-hmm. You trust their artistry and their choices to the point where it will get done and it will be the best thing it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a thing that people in publishing also need to look at is... You've handed off a book. That's your baby. Mm -hmm. The job that everyone has is to make that the best thing that it wishes to become. That may not be what the author had in mind. Mm -hmm. That may not be what the editor has in mind. But the story has a life of its own. So it's going to be what it is. And I mean, I look at myself more as a midwife to say, hmm, the baby wishes to be this. (laughs) And help the author to understand and everyone else to understand here's here's what this thing is trying to become let's let it be this yeah and get everyone to trust in that even if it's not what you want trust that you did right mm-hmm. um and if an author and an editor don't have that trust in each other then it's going to be a bad relationship and it's a yeah. bad fit you know regardless of what the story actually is there has to be that that trust there. Mm-hmm. And I know that in some regards, there's this 
reputation that editors have of being the enemy and you know they're just here to trash things and they're there to be the gatekeepers and say well yes and no you know do you trust our ability to guide the field in terms of taste Hmm. and the market would you want me to buy a a piece off of someone and have it not sell In which case, it doesn't serve the agent, it doesn't serve the author, it sure as hell doesn't serve the house. Mm. So there has to be this trust of like, no, I'm I'm doing the best I can for and by you. Yeah. In regard to the work, and I and I think one of the things that there's a mistake that can sometimes be made is the author can sometimes put too much of themselves in the work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And And if that's the case, then maybe this is not the best career choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but without that inherent trust, then you shouldn't be doing art. Mm-hmm. All art is about a certain level of inherent trust, whether that's theater or painting or sculpture, that you know your message is getting out there. And the editor is there to specifically help you get that message out there. It is not an adversarial v- relationship because there's nothing in it for being adversarial. There's no motive for you. Yeah, there's no motive. Like, why Why on earth would I want to do that? That makes my job harder and miserable. Yeah, why would you fight for fun? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally... I want to come to work and have fun. Mm-hmm. Now, is this occasionally going to get contentious? Yes. And it should, because you should argue. Yeah. I mean, argument produces really, really awesome results if, if it's done in a trusting and constructive manner. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day... I want everything to look cool because it's the author's name on there and it's my name on there and it's my house's name on there. And so, you know, bottom line, it's got to be the absolute best thing it can be. The author needs to know that when they throw that flaming boa, someone's not only going to put out the fire, but they're not going to add some gasoline to it. Right, exactly. And, you know, I'm not going to let you put your foot in it. Mm -hmm. You know, if I see something in there that's just, readers will go bananas. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you want to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that this is... You can't make that choice as an yeah. author in any way, shape, or form. It's you need to really think about this because you're not going into everyone's living room mm-hmm. while they're reading the book to explain what your motives were. Right. That's impossible. You know, this thing is going to have a life of its own once it leaves. And it is so hard during those discussions because I've absolutely had those conversations where the editor is saying, don't do this. Here's exactly what's going to happen. You know, here's the fight you're going to have to have. Are you prepared to have that fight? Mm -hmm. And I think even more now that we have the internet where everyone can jump on and get mad so quickly, Mm -hmm. um, it makes all of that hyperspeed. And so it's just a matter of are you willing to make that change and are you willing to fight for it with all of those people too? Yeah, it's it's a question of choices. Mm -hmm. You can make that choice, but you need to fully comprehend what the consequences of the choice are going to be. Yeah. with regard to you as an artist and to the work of art in question. And also for the rest of your career, do you want to take that upon oh, yourself yeah, I for could, the rest of your career? Oh, yeah, if you take it, you know, do you want to do that to yourself? Right. No. Okay, cool, then let's not do that. How much do you like fighting in your spare it, time? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, because the internet trolls will find you. There's so many. Oh, yeah. But one of the things I do as an editor that really, really helps, uh, I never send out an editorial letter attached to a manuscript without actually having a conversation that's good. over the phone with yeah. the author 
because sometimes the questions that I had get answered, and it's because, oh, all right, I didn't see that. You're right. It's right here. Um, or sometimes based on the answers that I get, I'll go back, I'll revise my comments, or I'll put more in mm-hmm. so that they're getting the fullest amount of information possible to sit down with a revision. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that email correctly expresses a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. So I'd really rather, I'd rather speak in person, but the phone is the next best thing. Yeah. Um, and I also spend a lot of time when I first acquire something, I'll do an initial phone call. It has nothing to do with editing and everything to do with, hi, I'm your editor. As an author, tell me a little bit about your process because I don't want to mess with that. It's something that works for you. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your process. Tell me about some things that you think are strengths and weaknesses in your writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some things in this particular manuscript that you have some questions about and that you aren't really sure aren't coming through so that when I hit those points, I know what I'm looking at and I'm specifically reading to address the questions that you have. Yeah. So I try to let authors know that it's very much a dialogue as mm-hmm. far as that's concerned and then with their agents I usually have more of a business dialogue mm-hmm. you know here here are the marketing plans that we have here are the publicity plans that we have this is you know here's the contract are there questions it's more negotiation so I try and keep everybody um, as involved as possible to the extent that it is important that they know these things for their jobs and they can do what they need to do Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to what you said about email versus phones, I find that I'm about 70% nicer over the phone. Sometimes, especially track changes, it just brings out the like, no, do this, do this, do this, delete this, delete this. So, Well, I think it brings out a level of transparent honesty Mm -hmm. that isn't really quite possible in an email because you can't get nuance or tone. Whereas over the phone, there is um, an intentional clarity and an intentional emotional honesty. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to be as confrontational. It's a lot harder to misread something yes, or misunderstand. Because then you can say, uh, wait a minute, I don't think you understood me correctly. Back it up. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think that that helps to build a relationship that is workable and based on trust. And it's so much easier to collaborate that way, too, because oh, yeah. you can kind of feel the energy of even the pauses of how happy are they? Okay, yeah, we'll go from there. But so that's that's a little bit about, you know, how I like working with authors and agents. So when you're not doing all of those things and you're, I'm sure, huge amounts of spare time, what do that you do? Copious spare time. Um, <laughs> I do jigsaw puzzles. Weirdly really? Enough. Yeah, I find them very calming and meditative in a way. Um, I meditate a lot. I find it makes, again, makes me calmer, Mm -hmm. a lot more blasé about, okay, yeah, things are on fire, things are exploding, it's all good. (laughs) Um, I've I've had a weird and varied background. I've been a director, I've been an actor, I've been a musician. Cool. What kind of... I play piano, but I also play violin, recorder, boron, which is the Irish frame drum. And because I play violin, I'm also capable of playing this instrument called a bazooki, and I can also play mandolin because they're strung in fifths, just like a violin. (laughs) Um, So I pick these things up. Uh, I've also had vocal training. Um, I've been a professional belly dancer. Wow. And performed down in, um, down on Bleecker, actually. Uh, Yeah. That's so cool. (laughs) Go fig. So I've been a professional dancer. Um, I've... God, I've just done so many bizarre things. I mean, I'm a mom, which also goes up there for doing crazy stuff. <laughs> um, I'm a third-degree black belt. Wow. In Kyokushin. 
um, and Shotokan. And I've had stage combat experience, so I know how to use a rapier. Gosh. <laughs> so I've had all this weird weapons training, which really kind of comes in handy, strangely enough. I was looking for weapons in your office. I'm not seeing any. I don't have any in here. I have a lot in my apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, I have three swords, a th- couple throwing knives, some dirks, and a stiletto. Wow. Um, I also have two bow staffs, nunchucks, and a pair of psi. <laughs> I'm like prepped for zombie apocalypse. My uh, and I put this in the in the profile uh, with manuscript wish list. I was voted by my uh, doctoral cohort to be the most likely to survive the apocalypse. So was that because of the weapons, or that was because of a number of things? But it's just I always have this. I'm prepped. Mm-hmm. I look like I'm dangerous. I have great resting bitch face. Yeah, so that's very people, useful. So if people see me at a con, come up to me anyway because my face just sort of rests <laughs> that way. Um, and I make it very, very plain whether I will or won't do something. So there's this kind of really great no-nonsense. I just don't have time for it anymore. Right. I'm 50 now and nobody has time for that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sort of, are we doing this or not? Right. Or, no, we're not doing that. It's a dumb idea. Go away. Um, <laughs> And I think that people kind of pick up on that. Yeah. So there's this sort of, nope, when it hits the fan, you want Jen at your back because, mm-hmm. you know, she's going to have the katana and know how to hotwire a motorcycle. And unless she doesn't have time for it. Unless I don't have time for <laughs> it. And I just, like, no, I'm going to finish my coffee, thanks. <laughs> Watch the zombies go by. Watch take a sip. Zombie. Yeah, take a sip. <laughs> it's like, you know, we're going to go to the stadium because we can grow plants there. And it's a lot easier to defend. <laughs> Takes a while to grow the plants, though. Well, I grew this thing from a leaf like less than a year ago. Less than a year. And it's it's You'd have to find food in the meantime. It's huge now. Well that's what cans are for. The canned goods. Yeah, so the canned goods are out there. (laughs) And and beef jerky. Yeah, that's smart. You have a bunch of that in your apartment? Um, I do like jerky. Um I like beer and wine Mm -hmm. and I love to cook. Mm -hmm. Um so if people want to swap recipes, I'm totally down for that. I wish there was a food club for publishing. You know, like everyone just brings something in a huge um, potluck. I think Tor once did a informal cookbook. Oh, cool! And every brought it. Everybody brought in like a recipe or two that they really, really enjoyed making. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a weird recollection, but that was just prior to me coming here. So I'm not sure. That's really nice. I love the idea of that. In addition to a book club. Um, just because then, you know, you have something to eat and depend- whatever the book was, you can still find something enjoyable. So. Well, yeah, because appetizers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, little, I, yeah. I, I have to admit, I shamefacedly admit that I am capable of sitting down and eating a pound and a half of fresh mozzarella and a box of Triscuits. What's wrong I, with that? I hate myself afterwards, but I know I'm going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can put down, put down massive amounts of food. Have you been to Murray's? I love that place. No, I haven't been to Murray's. I got to volunteer at one of their cheese classes a few weeks ago. It was amazing. Ooh. They sent us home with all the leftovers. I ate everything. I get to meet a cheese I don't like. Yeah, so. I had an author send me a box of cheese for Christmas, and I was ridiculously giddy. Yeah. I, I thought, oh my god, I've hit my adult prime when I'm really excited about getting a box of cheese. I think it makes sense to get excited about a box of cheese. <laughs> I was like, wow. And it was great, because it was this artisanal stuff that had like a... My favorite was the Earl Grey rub. Oh. It was amazing. That is amazing. It was from this place in Utah somewhere, and it was just amazing cheese. And I, that's pretty... That was dinner 
through my Christmas break. I'm mentally scheduling a trip to Utah now. Yeah, I, I just oh, it was so good. It had little bees on the on the oh the my gosh thing. So yeah, it was like some beehive thing. It was really that's good. so cool. And they had they had all kinds of wild stuff. The Cajun stuff was really good too. Oh, spicy. I, yeah, yeah, I like spicy foods. That's so cool. So yeah, I was just so yes, I could get so you know authors. Yeah, gift idea. Cheese. Give me <laughs> cheese. Cheese is always welcome. Once we got a wheel of Humboldt fog in the office, and that was just one of the most wonderful. That vein, it's so pretty. I just yeah, we food is special here. That is that is the one thing. Um, they'll they'll put snacks out on a table down the hall, and we're like a combination of vultures mm-hmm. getting on it. But we also take three or four of these things and we hoard it like raccoons. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I mean, I've got seriously, I've got like six granola bars in my desk drawer. Nice. From the box down the hallway. Yeah. Just, you never know when you'll need them. I know, right? <laughs> things could go horribly, horribly wrong and I have to barricade myself in my office. Mm-hmm. I need to survive. Well, you should bring some weapons and jerky. Just that's to be right. Safe. Weapons, jerky. Well, I have the super soaker over there in the corner. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see it. It's like you put labs <laughs> on it. That's so cute. <laughs> Have you used it? Um, yes. In the office? I have put on the, the cool goggles that I have here. Yeah, those and are my great. La- and my lab coat. <laughs> and I have actually gone down the hallway and had pictures ta- taken of me looking for research subjects. Oh, my gosh. Uh, for Tor Labs. And people think that it's loaded because it's me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. I just do crazy things. I also have you a, could load it. I also have a drone in my desk drawer. Really? I do. I have do you fly a, it around the office? Sometimes, yes. They intentionally made it so I could only run it for like five minutes at a time. Because they know you. Well, they know I'll weaponize it. Because <laughs> um, they know that I can. But it's this cute. It's not charged right now. Oh, but it's, it's so it's cute. cute. It's little. It's about the size of your palm. Yeah, that's adorable. And I think a bird would eat it if I tried to fly it outside. So I've never flown uh, it outside. Oh, yeah. New York I'm, City pigeons? Yeah. Fierce. I'm like, forget it. It would yeah. be gone. Um but yeah, it's just this little snowflake, and its little eyes light up blue, and it sounds like a really, really angry wasp. It's awesome. Oh, that's great! Can you make it deliver mail in the office and stuff um, like that? I think it's only capable of lofting like a post-it note at best. Hey, that that's mail. Again, we're back to the they didn't want me to weaponize it. Oh, but it'd be so much fun. But yeah, you do have the coolest office with all these things in it. I I like playing because it's all about play. Well, when you stop playing, that's when you're... Yeah, I, yeah. well, and, and that's just it. it. Always, You should always play. You should always take everything with a, a grain of salt, tongue-in-cheek, and a wink and a nod. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's about possibility. Yeah. It's, it's extending the, one it, the what if out of the story mm-hmm. and into real life. Mm-hmm. You should live your life as a what if. And I've had a lot of what, what ifs. Um, you know, I've, I've been an academic, I've, I've been an academic writer, editor, dancer, musician, actor, and all of it just, you know, and I may not even be doing this forever. I have no idea. And I don't know what Jen, I think I'm on 7.0 now. (laughs) I don't know. And, and that's part of the fun is just yeah. being open to that interplay of ideas and all the crazy stuff that's coming in. Well, compared to what we're taught to expect, right? Go to an office job, go home, watch Hulu, mm-hmm. crash, do it all again the night before. If you keep doing it or the next day, if you do that over and over again, you'll just wake up someday bored out of your mind. Or going, where am I? Yeah. Or worse, who am I? Oh, that's a question. Yeah. And, and I think that it's... Everything, and I, I take a very weird Buddhist stance on most stuff, it's everything is impermanent. Mm-hmm. And if you go at it that way, the good stuff is impermanent, so don't cling to it. 
the bad stuff is impermanent, so don't get too down. It's just, it's a constant give and take. And the, and the key is doing the same thing over and over and over again with an openness as if, just like being an actor on stage doing mm-hmm. the same play every night, yeah. you have to behave as if it is spontaneous and new every single time. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the thing to strive for, especially when you're, you know, hip deep in a bunch of words. Right. It's everything needs to be new and fresh and just look at it. You know, even after I've read, most of the time I read manuscripts three or four times. Yeah. And it's got to be fresh and new. And if I'm really lucky, the author gives me something where I find something new every single time. That's exciting. Which is, yeah, I get really excited about that. I was like, oh my God, I missed that the first time. (gasps) Oh, I see what you did there, you (laughs) sneaky thing, you know. And I I love works that make me do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I love rereading books. I'm a, I'm a big rereader. And when they take your edits and run with them, there's something so satisfying about that. The most satisfying thing, and I've had two authors come back to me and do this. They were a little, they were a little put out about the amount of editing that I did. But they moved through that. And on the other side of that, when they handed me back the manu- the revised manuscript, they said, oh, my God, now I know why every single scene is in this book. I was like, yes, that's what's supposed to be happening. You know, you, there should be a purpose behind every single scene. Things yeah. shouldn't be in there just to be in there. They should further it. And is it important that you know all these nitty-gritty things that, you know, you're not supposed to talk about in your D&D party, like your backstory? <laughs> yeah, you kind of do. Because your backstory is really, really important because you're making this world. Mm. It's not necessary for the reader to know the whole backstory. They'll get the bits of the backstory as that becomes important to the narrative that they're reading right then. So I always tell my authors, yes, it's absolutely important that you know how magic works. It is not important for us to have a college-level lecture in the middle of one of the scenes about how magic works. (laughs) You should show us how the magic works. Mm -hmm. It it should be such that when I'm done reading the book, I should be able to reverse engineer exactly what your rules are without you having told me what your rules are. Yeah. So in addition to a lab coat and a super soaker, can you tell us a bit more about Tor Labs? Tor Labs uh, is a brainchild that Marco Palmieri and I came up with. Um, famously had over drinks at Harding's down the, ah. down the street here um, with some people that I knew from a days as a theater critic. Uh, I know Mac Rogers, who is one of the most amazing science fiction playwrights, I think, of you know the last two decades easily. Uh, and he'd done a lot of stuff for GE Theater. He mm-hmm. wrote The Message um, and he wrote Life After. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of sitting around with a whole bunch of people and going, wouldn't it be really, really cool if... And we thought, oh, ha, 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 yes, that would be super awesome. More drinks. <laughs> and just kind of left it there because how the, how the hell would we do that? Mm-hmm. And then we kind of sat around and thought, you know, there are no rules that say we can't. Why can't we make original audio the primary format? Mm. And why does it have to be a book? If it's audio, why can't it be an original drama? And then we can make a book out of it. Then we could do a novelization of it. Her. And we started really thinking about it. And with the uptick in audio sales on audiobooks mm-hmm. and stuff, we thought, well, heck, this is going to work out brilliantly. 
and we did very very well. It was a it was a great learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, it's out there. Steal the stars is yeah. our first offering. Uh, we had enormous great response. Yeah, I saw it. Um, and we're in the process of of looking at some further projects that I can't really talk about okay. because it's it would jinx it. But trying to work and and do some more because there's there's a large um, desire in audiences to hear more original, especially speculative fiction. Um, And there are things that I like. Mm -hmm. And I want to try and bring more of that because I think there are lots of different ways to tell stories. I think there are lots of ways to get stories out there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think publishers, now that there's all these different technological formats that we can use, Mm -hmm. we need to learn how to utilize these to get stories out Mm -hmm. to different populations. Um, Especially when I think it's very important now for people who are not used to diversity Mm -hmm. to understand diversity. And I think by using as many formats as possible and as many uh, platforms as possible, I think it can only, you know, increase the quality of stories that I get that are submitted to me, mm-hmm. but also raise the awareness in readers and develop a wider audience for a larger number of authors. Yeah, absolutely. So were you there behind the scenes? Were you there with the casting? Um, I largely let the director do the casting. I mean, for me, it was looking over the script and doing some dramaturgical tweaking. So, I mean, it was I was just like, oh, my God, I'm doing theater again. This is amazing. <laughs> um, who knew? Um, but really, Gideon Media uh, were the people that did a lot of the work. I, I've seen Jordana Williams. She was the director. Mm-hmm. I've seen her do Max work before. They worked very closely together. And like a good theater practitioner, she knows her job. I don't need to tell her how to do her job. I Mm -hmm. trust her decision-making process on this. I trusted Mac as a playwright. I trusted the people that they chose to cast. I mean, they were all really, really amazing actors. Um, As a matter of fact, Nima Jarabchi, who played Matt Salem, ended up winning an an Audioverse Award for Best Supporting Actor. That's Um, so cool. So... Again, it was a, a question of, I got to work with an amazing group of really, really super talented people mm-hmm. that I absolutely positively trusted and was familiar with their work, and, you know, they didn't disappoint. We, we ended up getting this thing that has really dropped a lot. People go, oh my God, we didn't know that it could be like this. Yeah. Which is so gratifying, right? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It's, and it's, it's been a great... I mean, there are some things that I think we do differently, because mm-hmm. it was a learning curve. I mean, we haven't done this before. Yeah. Um, but I think we got a lot of really, really good information out of the challenges that we had. I think we met them. Um, I think we found an audience. I think we found an audience we can grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're looking at new and different things that we can try and bring to the table. It just It takes time, because first yeah. and foremost... I'm a book editor. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it's kind of like, that's a little side project. Yeah. And when I get to do that side project, that's really super interesting, but I have to be very, very picky about what I choose to do with it because my primary responsibility is as a book editor. Absolutely. Do you have a vision of where original audio content will be in 10 years? No, that's the beauty. Yeah. I have no freaking idea mm-hmm. because I think that the technologic platform 
keeps making leaps and bounds and leaps and bounds. I think the audience is, is growing. Um, I think the offerings are growing. Um, what's really kind of fun, I was at the Austin Film Festival uh, to participate in their first podcast track. And we all came together. I mean, these people that we heard, we've heard their podcast. It was great. It was a love fest. We're like, oh, my God, we love you. <laughs> We're fanboying, girling over each other. <laughs> and the thing that come out, came out of it was... We thought you knew what you were doing. Well, we thought you knew what you were doing. We all thought somebody had some huge insight on how to do this thing better than we were doing it. And what turns out is, no, we're all making up the rules as we go. Mm -hmm. It's all the Wild West. It's all nobody knows what does or doesn't work. We're feeling our way through it. And now that we are more in conversation with each other as producers and writers... Now we are beginning to have a kind of you know, a pool of knowledge that we can pull from from each other. But yeah, it was great to sit across the table and say, "But didn't you?" And think, "No, we have no idea what's going on. We're just <laughs> making crap up." Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of a relief in mm-hmm. some ways. Like, oh, good, and really terrifying. And others going, "Oh my God, nobody knows what's going on or what to do." Right. Uh, so it's a double-edged sword as far as that's mm-hmm. concerned. But in 10 years, oh, hell no. I have no idea. For all I know, we'll, they'll finally solve all the problems with virtual reality, and it'll be a completely different platform. <laughs> have you ever tried, what is it called, the HTC One, where you can have the controllers and, like, you can shoot arrows at things and light them on fire, and it vibrates like you're really pulling the bow back? It's no, so cool. No, because I usually go to ranges where I get to have real arrows on fire. Oh, you, on fire? Oh, yeah. Where do you do that? It's called Ren Faire After Dark. My Ren Faire did not have that. California Ren Faire is that's like because, not... No, that's because you guys are the oldest Ren Faire, and it's like a little bit too, you know. Yeah, it's, but... It's the senior people. <laughs> the thing is, though, when they had this beautiful forest, and then it was sold to make a golf course. And then ever since, oh. it's been kind of like, not as good, because nowhere is going to be as good as that. I was a singing washerwoman one summer, and we had like a jacuzzi turned into a little well and everything. And it was really fun, but it just, it never was the same. You see, I started out um, as a hawker. Oh, nice. And then wow. I went, yeah. yeah, you must have the voice. And then I, I ended up doing a lot of vocals and musician work, and then I eventually was on the royal court as wow. uh, as Isabella Borgia. Oh, my gosh. And so, <laughs> Are the costumes as hot as they look? They must be. Um, I Well, I intentionally went with an Italian costume, because then all you do is you have your boobs are corseted, and mm-hmm. then the rest of it's nice and open, and it's very airy, it's oh, really, God, really yeah. comfy. And you can take the sleeves off, and if it's cold, you can put the sleeves back on again. (laughs) You know, it's really, really great. Um, Plus the fact, um, because it's still slightly corseted up top, you can Mm -hmm. take a very small, like, snack pack baggie and put crushed ice in it and wiggle it down the front. It's nice and, yeah. (laughs) There are all kinds of crazy tricks that we used to do. Or or the the battery-powered fans, a lot of the the ones would would clip them to the inside of the farthingales. Mm -hmm. And you'd see these, like, little puffs of dust yeah, I mean, I like, yeah. Oh, she's got one of those fans. <laughs> she looks like she's a, ha- a hovercraft, but, but yeah, she's we, actually, yeah. yeah, you know, there were three of us, and we were the Borgia sisters. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, Lucretia, Gabriella, and Isabella. Mm-hmm. I was the eldest. Lucretia was a nice little ditzy one, and we would do these crazy improvs. And then one day they put us in charge of the wine tasting, and we thought, wait a minute, you're putting us. Oh yeah, it never occurred to them what that meant. <laughs> And we just kind of went bonkers, and that became a sort of breakfast with the Borgias. Oh, that's so cool. And, and we would just do these crazy improv things. I mean, I had, I had a guy on the court where we had a running gag where he was my husband, and I couldn't kill him. He would not die. 
and we'd have this big I'd, I'd give him things he'd you know duck when the axe would come by and we just we just kept playing with it and getting crazier and crazier because you know it's just it's all improv and, and we would just come up with these crazy things that we would do mm-hmm. as shtick um, so yeah I, but flaming arrows really? yeah we, we, we would do uh, knife throwing that's where I, I learned how to throw knives cool um, I learned a lot of stage combat initially there mm-hmm. um, there crazy stuff I remember there there was a tornado warning going on and we are on the archery range where are we going to go? <laughs> you know we might as well go out having fun so you know mm-hmm. we're, wind is picking up it's like I think I can do this you know <laughs> And so we would have really crazy stuff, and I have and I have friends um, uh, who live out in like Mayo Pack, and they have an archery butt, and we regularly shoot off pellet guns and do <laughs> archery. And and I remember when I was still in Michigan, we we actually we had a, a chain piece of chainmail, big chainmail shirt, like hmm. So we hooked that up to the archery butt, and we're like, all right, can we put arrows through this thing? And yeah, you can put some good sized holes in, in somebody. So yeah, arrows and chainmail do not make a good combo. Wow. And even plate, we put some some plate up and it was making some yeah. <laughs> that sounds fun. You just have to have a lot of poundage on the bow. <laughs> right. Wow, cool. So so we would sit there and go, What if? And, right, exactly. And, yeah. So yeah, I got to do a lot of weird, crazy, strange things. Why do you think so many people stop asking what if? I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think some people get put down mm-hmm. for asking what if or made fun of. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people get old and forget. They forget what ifs. Mm-hmm. I think some people are afraid of what ifs. Mm, yeah. So I, th- I think there are a lot of reasons that people cease asking what if. I think it, it, it needs to be a combination of absolute fearlessness because what ifs can be good and what ifs can be bad too but that doesn't make that doesn't mean that you don't learn from them and that they don't challenge you to become a better person mm-hmm. but i think that what if takes it takes fearlessness it takes a childlike trust that things will be what they need to be mm-hmm. not what you necessarily want them to be but you need to be okay with that and I think that if you have that open childlike trust, both in yourself and in, in the world that you're inhabiting, and a fearlessness, uh, that what ifs can take you some really amazing places. And I've been through, a, at this point in my life, at 50 years old, at Gen, I think 7.0, I've had a lot of what ifs, and they've been terrifying, and they've been exhilarating, but they've never disappointed Mm. and I haven't had any regrets and my next big what if is coming up in November I am for my 50th birthday which is March it's not November I am going to the Arctic Circle in Norway wow to a polar park where they have tame wolves and I am going to watch the Aurora Borealis, and I am going to run and howl with the wolves. Oh, my gosh. And, How close can you get? And that's my friend. Uh, they're used to humans. You're in, so you can be like, you're hi, in, nice wolf. Yeah, you can get belly rubs, kisses. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're in there with ten people and a couple of the, the handlers. And so, yeah, you're nose to nose with the wolves. I had no idea you could do that. I know, right? And I, and I saw that, and the second I saw that, something in me like yelled 
And it's the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Mm. Because I've never been to a foreign country by myself where someone wasn't meeting me or I wasn't there for like a con or something like that. It's the Arctic Circle. I hate the cold. Mm -hmm. I hate the cold. And in November. And it's in November because I wanted to see the aurora. Yeah. Because if you're not going for a twofer, why bother? Right. And there was just something in it that just completely spoke to me. And I'm like, no, I am a 50-year-old woman and I am letting myself go silver and I am going to run with the wolves. And so that's my next big adventure. Oh, that's wonderful. Good for you. Yeah, and I and I highly recommend. It's been really exhilarating, but really, really terrifying. But I, I've learned this one thing from it, that as you approach 50, especially if you're a woman, as you approach 50, choose something to do that scares the shit out of you. And plan and do it. But it's got to be just you. It can't be you and your girlfriends. It can't be you and your partner. It can't be you and your kids. Just for you, just that one thing that takes you completely out of your comfort zone and choose to do it and do it at 50. Because if you can do it at 50, the rest of your life is nothing. Nothing's going to scare you. Wow. And up to that point, so many things you do that aren't for you Mm -hmm. that I think 50 is this great mark that you should celebrate and embrace and embrace it by doing something fearless. Oh, I love that. And so, yes, yeah, so that is that is my advice for women approaching 50. Like, when you get to, to 48, 49, like, start really thinking about it and plan for it and save for it and do it. I love the idea of it just being you, too, because it's so easy to hide behind mm-hmm. the other people and just constantly be like, is this right? Is this okay? Am I doing the right thing? Yeah, no, it's got to be for you, and it's got to be about your comfort zone and it's got to be about your fearlessness. I mean, it could be jumping out of a plane, for heaven's sakes. Mm-hmm. I would never do that. Yeah, me either. I mean, I'm scared of that, but... It doesn't sound fun, either. It's a perfectly good plane. Why do I want to leave? <laughs> um, but I, I love traveling. I love, I love the notion of everything being a journey. Yeah. And that the journey is the thing. But I also love... You know, I love wolves. I love ravens. I'm a sucker for that. Mm-hmm. And so to go and do that in a place that's completely remote, yeah. you know, I, I, it's it's terrifying and exhilarating. And I have I have no idea how I'm going to get from the airport mm-hmm. to wherever. I, I, they don't have a bunch of hotels out there. Right. I'm pretty sure that at some point Uber doesn't work anymore. Do they have sled dogs and things like that? I'm sure, you know, but this, this place is like 30, 40 miles inside the Arctic Circle, like another half an hour. And I could be at the tip of of Sweden and Finland. Wow. You know, because everything's (laughs) the point. And, you know, I'm looking at some places and I don't want to stay in a hotel. I want to stay in a traditional guest house and I want to, and I want to, I don't want to do touristy things. I want to actually experience culture and have fun and be out in it. And that's the kind of traveler that I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can see that in some of the things that I do. I love anthropological science fiction, where it's oh, about cool. communication and identity and getting messy and yeah. what happens when you get outside of what you know. You know what happens when you get to that here be dragons mm-hmm. edge, and you, you know you look over. It's like, do we want to jump? It's like, what? Yeah. You know, here, hold my beer. I bet I could jump this if I got a running start. And that's, I think, that's a really, really great way to approach most things in life. Yeah. Is is very much a, with a running start, yeah, I, I could make that. Sure. Yeah. 
And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get that nice little wily coyote splat mark down <laughs> yes. at the bottom. And sometimes you do. Mm-hmm. And 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 then you need to find the next cliff. And you never know. Yeah. You really never know. And and I don't. I think it's a crime if if you let f- fear. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Fear keeps your ass intact. There is a point for fear. But there's also a point to stretching yourself beyond those comfortable limits. Mm-hmm. And I think that by making a regular practice of it, you get really good at what if. You have to keep asking that question, though, so the question doesn't go away. Oh, yeah. yeah. What if I decided to do this? Not a should, mm-hmm. but a could. I could do this. Mm-hmm. What would happen if I did? Who would I be if I did? What could come from this if I did? And sometimes even the consequences are good for you. So, you know, never be never be afraid of, of doing the crazy things and stretching yourself as an artist, stretching yourself as an editor or an agent or a human. You know, definitely go out there. Run with some wolves, for God's sake. I love that you will know what a wolf feels like. I mean, you're going to touch one. and, and oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing because so many people are so afraid of them. Too. Yeah. And and I love and see I love dogs. I understand them. Mm-hmm. And I've had dogs that are considered like really mean come up to me and like, "Oh my god, you're one of my people." Boom, here's my belly and people looking at me like, "Going, my dog doesn't act like that." It's like it's me. You know, I've been I've been those to cuz where I used to live is actually a wolf park mm-hmm. here in Salem, New York. And you can't go like right up to them. You can go up to the fence. So I've literally been this close to an arctic wolf leaning its head in like begging to be petted and I'm like I know you have itchy face and I really want to help you out dude but they'll throw me out mm-hmm. and and that's really you know you have tattoos you do? yeah <sighs> I have my my wolf tattoos oh it's beautiful wow oh my son my wolf pup oh they're have, so expressive too and I have ravens on my ankle oh that's amazing because wolves and ravens go together. <laughs> now, if only podcasts could be visual. Too. I know, right? Um, so, yeah, it's it's. I do kind of know, but I don't know what it's like to get kisses from one. I don't know what it's like to give a really satisfying belly scratch. Soon you will know, and soon I will know in a few months. That's so it'll amazing. be really, yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be absolutely insane. Wow. Well, I might just email you and ask how it was. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I, I'm, I'm going to have, you know, like running film and stuff where I can upload. You better be taking pictures. And yeah, <laughs> believe me, I'm going to be sitting there with Wolf going, selfie. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so if you had Google level funding and the time to do anything you wanted with it, what would you melt? I would probably do a lot of performance education initiatives because I think um, community level performance Mm -hmm. uh, when communities make it to serve their purposes and their needs that it can open up a lot of dialogues in ways that aren't available there's something about wearing a mask and pretending that you're not what you are that allows a, a kind of truth to come out in a way that is safe yeah and I think that a lot of, of youth um, don't have the opportunity to express themselves this way, um, don't have the opportunity to explore feelings. Like Adam Driver, um, I really admire him. Mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's a veteran, but he also has a veterans initiative wherein they 
um, they go in as a troop, and they have veterans express themselves performatively. They make plays. They do these plays. And there is something about doing that that allows you to start a dialogue with yourself and a dialogue with other people. Um, and so I, I think that I would probably do some kind of performance initiative um, like Adam Driver is doing for veterans because this gets them talking about things that they don't feel they can talk about. Yeah. And it's safe to do it this way. Um, to get kids talking so that it's not these kids versus these kids and, you know, people coming in. The whole gun thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in a way that is extremely powerful and extremely immediate that doesn't play out on TV because you can have things play out on TV, but the second it's face-to-face with you in an enclosed space, there's a gut-wrenching immediacy to it Mm -hmm. that cannot be ignored. Um, And I think that that can be used on a number of different levels in a number of different kinds of ways with different communities to put themselves in dialogue with each other in ways that are far more constructive Mm -hmm. than yelling at each other. Yeah, given where we are as a country, that yeah, could be I, and very I, and useful. I, and I think that that's a really good way to go about it because it both separates, but at the same time it still provides a level of immediacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the emotional immediacy is there even if it feels a bit mm-hmm. safer. It's very Augusto Boal theater, the, the oppressed kind of thing, but I'm very into that sort of thing. I, I think that it's a way of expressing and performing both your community and as a group and then identities as individuals Mm -hmm. um, in ways that are constructive instead of destructive. Yeah. It's kind of like going back to how we hear so much about a person over the phone more than we do in the text of an email, just putting people in spaces where they are forced to acknowledge the humanity of the people there. Yeah. And there's, and it builds a level of compassion. Mm -hmm. It reopens a notion of not just listening but actually hearing different sides of something. And it can be played out in a way that um, is extremely condensed. And I think that that's, it's a great shorthand. And mm-hmm. it, it gets to the point very, very quickly uh, and opens up as opposed to closing in. So if you were a superhero, what kind of powers would you have? <laughs> I'd be John Wick. Uh, elaborate for Oh my God, John Wick? Um, John Wick is his own special kind of superhero. Um, You know, absolute aim, absolute logistics. Uh, But at the same time, he's also very compassionate and just wants to be left alone. (laughs) I'm I'm done with this now, but damn it, you killed my dog and now I'm having to come back. Um, I highly recommend Googling the John Wick nerf battle. It is the most insanely hilarious but beautifully executed thing I've ever seen. Um, and I don't know, it's really kind of hard. It's like, I like John Wick. Um, at heart, I'm kind of a Sith Lord. So I've, I've got that whole Jedi Sith thing going on. Um, you know, I, I, I'm an editor. I already, I kind of already feel like I moved through the world as a superhero. (laughs) You know, I, belly dancer, martial arts experts like yeah you know i'm running scenarios in my head of course i'm i'm already a superhero i'm wonder gen um so yeah i find that kind of thing sort of amusing but i like i like flawed people mm-hmm. who i like the samurai films where you've got the old guy who's put down his sword and he's amazing and he can do anything but he just wants to be in his hut 
but the villagers keep showing up and wanting things. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of I kind of feel for the dude in the hut. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like sometimes if you live in the city, it's an endless parade of people wanting things. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah I'm admittedly not as into superheroes, as, but the superheroes that I'm into are the ones that are just sort of like, oh god, are we doing this again? Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. It's more that I like to explore people's uh, power fantasies of like, if you had all the money and the power, if you also had magic, what would happen? And and see, I I love thinking of those things too, but I also love bringing it in and and asking myself, why do I feel like I don't have power now? That's a great question. Why do you feel like you don't have all the power and resources that you need right now? And I think that I do. Um, You know, am I going to go and and initiate world peace? Well, no, I'm not. But at a local level, I can. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's even more important because that's where we're actually living. Everything else is just like weird high concept stuff. Um, so, I mean, to me, I'd flip that question and say, what makes you think that you don't have the power to do these things? What makes you think that you don't have the resources for it? Mm-hmm. It's interesting how we almost teach each other self-limiting beliefs. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's a very weird way to live. It is. Yeah. You know, what's stopping you? Mm-hmm. Well, and if something's stopping from you, get rid of it. Yeah. There are probably solutions. You, you just know, have there, to think there are of solutions. Some, you just, yeah. you know, you have to find the right resources for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible for me to sprout wings and fly off. Let's be real. You could probably find someone to build you mechanical wings. Exactly. Though. You know, and maybe I could get a paraglider and jump off the top of a building. I'd get arrested when I hit the bottom. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, that's not that's, that's very, a, very fast. That's a different set of problems. <laughs> that wasn't the question. <laughs> like they say, if it weren't for physics and law enforcement, I'd be unstoppable. Right. Exactly. I like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very, very fond of flipping the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's being able to flip the question allows you to come at things from a position of power because you've changed the rules already by flipping the question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have one last bit of advice for writers? You are going to get lots and lots and lots of rejections. And the question that I have is, why are you choosing to do what you're doing? If you're doing it for yourself, awesome. If you're doing it because it's an extension of yourself, then you need to ask yourself better questions. Um, and if you want it enough, it won't matter how often you're rejected. Because the point is, you're telling the story. Whether or not it gets to readers by a traditional method is irrelevant. Write the story, put it out in the world however you can. And as long as you're doing that, you're a writer. I love that. Thank you so much. You're absolutely welcome. This has been great. This has been fantastic. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.